This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Lama Sultram Alioni. Lama Sultram is an author, an internationally known Buddhist teacher, and the founder of Tara Mandala, a retreat center in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Lama Sultram was the first American woman to be ordained as a Tibetan nun by His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa. At the age of 26, after four years as a nun, she returned her monastic vows, married, and raised three children. With Sounds True, Lama Sultram has created several audio programs, including The Mandala of the Enlightened Feminine and Cutting Through Fear, where she shares a process that can help meet and release what the ancient Tibetans called demons, fears, and other unhelpful emotions and obsessions. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lama Sultram and I spoke about the sacred feminine within Buddhism and how to understand the sacred feminine without creating duality. We talked about the 11th century Tibetan yogini and originator of the practice of Chud, Machik Bladram, and about Lama Sultram's sudden loss of her husband David just a couple of years ago and her journey through grief and what she's learned through the process. Here's my conversation with Lama Sultram Alioni. Lama Sultram, to begin with, I want to help orient our listeners a bit to who you are as a Lama and the strand of teaching that you're bringing into the world. And I know from your history that early in your life, in your 20s, you had a passionate interest in discovering the women teachers within Tibetan Buddhism. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, that time in your life and this interest and real devotion, actually, in your life to find who are the women and how can I study from them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that search really came out of the death of my daughter. I had a daughter um, who was a twin who died of sudden infant death. And I had been a Buddhist nun I was ordained in 1970 by the 16th Karmapa and then been a nun for about four years and then disrobed and had four children, uh, the first two and then these twins. And so the the girl of the boy-girl twin, Dyad, um, Kiara, died of sudden infant death in 1980. And... I had been obviously a serious practitioner because I was a nun and then had transitioned into being a mother and really I couldn't find any stories about women who were mothers who were serious Buddhists. It was either nuns or it was the Milarepa songs about how unfortunate it was to have a female body and how bad women were, and how they were always gossiping and lazy and so on. And so when Kiara died, I really felt I had to find some stories that could help me 
transition through that situation. And so that set me off on the search that became my first book, Women of Wisdom. And in the process of finding the stories and then doing the research for the introduction, I became aware that this need for women's stories and for the sacred feminine was not unique to Buddhism, but was really a worldwide need and and a worldwide search that there were there were many other women doing this at that time and finding things and also looking historically at earlier periods like the Neolithic time when there was a goddess culture and so on and so writing the introduction for Women of Wisdom, I I met some of those women and then I became aware of their research. And so what grew out of that for me was not only finding the stories that, that I needed, and of course the research itself was healing for me, but also recognizing the lack of the feminine in the world and the sacred feminine, and of course the feminist movement was was already happening and very important. And there was this spiritual piece of that that was happening as well. And so I'm still passionately involved with that, and um, it has not been easy within the the Buddhist um, patriarchy, if you will, Um and of course it is one, um, to do this and at the same time maintain my relationships with within the the uh, Tibetan Buddhist world because I've never wanted to leave it. I love it and I'm dedicated and I'm actually quite a traditional teacher. <clears throat> so I've had to blend this um, interest and passion and belief in the absolute necessity for the world right now that we get the feminine wisdom back um, with my traditional practices and so on. And yeah, it's a it's kind of an interesting story I, what I've been through in in that world and and in that process and and sort of what has been happening lately. Um, to do with that? Yeah, tell me. I'd be curious, yeah. Um, well, so this began, I, I I wrote that book in the early 80s. Uh, it came out in 1984, Women of Wisdom. And then I started teaching. Um, and then in the late 90s, I had already been teaching for quite a while and often taught about the sacred feminine and about the Dakini principle in Buddhism and so on. And as I said, was aware of this larger scope of that work that was beyond Buddhism and was really a worldwide movement. And so in the late um, 90s, Um, I got a letter from my my teacher, my my lama, saying, uh, "You're too feminist, and feminism is dualistic." And also, um, he objected to my, mm, I guess, the, the use of psychology with Buddhism. Hmm. Um, or the yeah, the overlay of psychology and Buddhism and, and emotional work, because I felt that was a big um, missing piece in in Buddhism, and so I had included that in my teaching and in my work. And um, so I received this letter, and uh, and and then he said, I think you should not come to this next training for mm-hmm. teachers. Uh, and I had been the the first and the only teacher that he had authorized at that point. And so, obviously, 
obviously this was very shocking. And, yeah, uh, quite a blow up. Always, yeah, it was. I actually went into physical shock when I got this letter. Um, and so the upshot was that I went into a year-long solitary retreat, which was, I think, shortly after I last saw you. Um, <clears throat> so I went into that retreat 2001-2002. And part of what I wanted to do in that retreat was sit with this question by myself without any interference from the outside and really uh, see, is this important or is this dualistic? Is is um, the return of the sacred feminism or the sacred feminine, um, and I guess you could say sacred feminism, really, is, is, is that important or is that dualistic? And so I wanted to, to sit with that question. And, of course, I was doing other practices and so on. I wasn't just sitting for a year thinking about that. Um, but what happened in the retreat was uh, 9-11 occurred during that retreat. And so, of course, I didn't see the footage and so on, but I heard about it because my husband brought me my food and he he told me. And so my reaction to it was, where's the feminine here in the lives of these men who did this? And then also in the reaction from the United States. I just found a complete lack of it in both those situations. And so that influenced me to recommit to, yes, this is important, and yes, this is relevant, and no, it's no more dualistic than, you know, the 2,500 years of patriarchy and Buddhism, you know. Um and that really what I was looking for was not dualistic, it was integration. It was the, the divine union of masculine and feminine and the balance of those 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 energies which we 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 all have within us, whether we're genetically male or female or transgender or whatever we are, we're 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 working with those energies within ourselves and we need to honor both. And the 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 imbalance was also destructive is also destructive to men and so i made the decision to re, to to recommit to that and to sit with the results of whatever that would be you know that i i knew that i would probably sacrifice the relationship with my teacher who had been my teacher for 18 years and i i got the conviction and the courage to do that, and it in retrospect, it's very easy to see. Oh yes, of course, you you should do that, you know. But at the, in the time in that moment, it was absolutely a grueling decision, and I had so much self doubt um, about you know myself, and if, was I seeing things accurately, or was there some distortion, and so on. So anyway, I did make that step, and then um, at when that once I had taken that decision, and I began to teach from having made that decision, and to lead Tara Mandala, which is my center, as you know, in in Southern Colorado, from taking my seat with an authentic sense of what I believed and not for the really the first time in my life looking always to my lamas for the for the answers and you know how should i do this and what should i do and rinpoche this and rinpoche that and and you have to realize that i got involved with this when i was 19 years old i was ordained at 22 so i was very seeped in that culture and and that was so difficult to to begin to make my own decisions. But the result, the upshot of it was that Tara Mandala began to really flourish in an amazing way and 
within the last 10 years, it's been completely built out. We raised, I think, something like six million five hundred thousand dollars to build our mandala. And it, it, there's a three-story mandala temple dedicated to the sacred feminine in Buddhism now, uh, with life-size stories, life-size statues of the 21 Taras, and so on. So, what happened was it was like the floodgates just opened, and the support just poured in, and so many people had been waiting really for me to do this, to to make to take my seat, you mm-hmm. know, and something authentic and. And so then the interesting thing that's happened very recently in the last year or so is this is um this teacher that that um I was involved with and, and it's um his name is Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, um Chojil Namkai Norbu, that in the past year he has invited me to come and teach mm-hmm. at his centers and teach this work mm-hmm. that you know that that um that he had been so resistant to mm-hmm. before and now this year he's coming to Taramandala. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. What your story really underscores I think many things but the one that's impressed upon me at this moment that I'm really feeling is how when we're willing to individuate if you will or stand up to what we see as authority figures or power, how our own life can really blossom when we're willing to take that stand, but how courageous it is to do that and scary it is for all of us. Yeah. Very difficult. And you you have to be sure you're ready, you know. But by then, uh, by that time, let's see, I was 54 at that time, so it was time to grow up. It was time to leave the father's house, even though the father was so wonderful. And um, I had such de- deep and abiding respect for him. And even the decision that I had to kind of go on my own, was on, there was never any lack of respect or um, cherishing, really, of that being and that relationship so it was incredibly hard to do and um in retrospect again it's it's it seems sort of obvious as of course you have to do that but at the same time um you know and i just want to kind of speak out to anyone who's listening to us in our conversation and say you really need to trust yourself and in order to trust yourself, you have to understand what your real values are and then be authentic with those. And it's not necessarily going to be easy and you're not necessarily going to get applause and you may get a lot of criticism. But if you don't do that, you won't be living authentically. Now, I'm curious, Lama Sultram, you talked about the temple devoted to the sacred feminine at Tara Mandala. How is it that you understand the sacred feminine in a way that doesn't create a sense of polarization or Mm -hmm. duality? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it... um... I think of divine union like the Yabyum model that is really sort of the the classic image of Tantra, the union of masculine and feminine. And so that is actually the primary metaphor of Tantra, is is that union. And that it, it became sort of commercialized as like, oh, this is sort of sacred sex and this is how we can have sex and have it, you know, somehow be spiritual, but really that um, symbolism, it is that, and and Tantra does involve physicality and and sacred sexuality, but um, in that dyad, the feminine is the primordial matrix of awakened 
So she is pure potential. And yet, no thing in herself. So one of the ways that she's described is the pregnant zero. And so this is Samantabhadri or Prajnaparamita. That's the Dharmakaya level of the sacred feminine. And so what I mean by Dharmakaya is the level beyond or preceding form. So if this this is also called the great mother and so this space, this sort of pregnant potential then is recognized by the consciousness. And that turning of consciousness to recognize its true condition, which is the ground of being, the great mother, pure potential, emptiness, that is the masculine, Samantabhadra. So Samantabhadra is within each of us the awareness that turns to look at itself. And the itself that it looks at is the feminine. So when that consciousness turns back and reunifies with its true condition, that is the moment of yabyum. That's the union of masculine and feminine. At that level, at Dharmakaya. At the level of Sambhogakaya, which is the luminous expression of that pure potential into light, into radiance. And it's manifest in the forms of the mandalas and also deities within the Tibetan Buddhist pantheon. All those deities are Sambhogakaya. So the feminine at that level is, for example green Tara or white Tara or the Dakinis, the five Dakinis, those are, that's all Sambhogakaya. And in Sambhogakaya, there's masculine and feminine deities. And so the um, what the feminine is there represents prajna or sherap in in Tibetan wisdom, and the masculine is skillful means, or skillful means and compassion. And so once again, you have this dyad of energy, which is the union of skillful means and wisdom. And so what, when I see, for example, in a very practical sense, for example, at Tara Mandala, um, we have men and women, and women have certain capacities and certain tendencies and certain energies, and men have certain capacities and tendencies and energies. And and women also within themselves have masculine aspects and feminine aspects, and the same for the men. And what we have at the level of Sambhogakaya is this union of wisdom and skillful means. And so when you work with a deity um, as a tantric practitioner, you might be a male who's given the yidam of Tara. And and so this, then you develop, as a man, you develop those qualities of Tara, of, of compassion and active compassion and and so on. And as a woman, you might get a male deity like, say, Vajrapani or Avalokiteshvara, and then you would develop those qualities within yourself through the practice, through identification, which is the main way that the deities are used, is you identify with these luminous beings, and then your being gradually begins to become luminous, almost almost in a literal sense that your cells become light through 
really deep practice with some Bogakaya energies. And so when when we have something like the temple at Taramanda, we have the 21 Taras in the temple, life-size life statues. And then we have on the shrine the Great Mother, Prajnaparamita. And then we have uh, Machi Lapton as the main statue, and she's Nirmanakaya. So Nirmanakaya is this dimension that you and I are in. We, we have bodies and we're ordinary beings and, and we have limits in what we can perceive and maybe we can visualize some Bogakaya, but we can't actually see it. And maybe we can touch on Dharmakaya and learn to rest in it, but it's not our normal condition. And so, uh, for example, Machi Lapton as a as a woman, and she was an 11th century yogini. She's another aspect of the feminine. So, in a way, it's it's almost like if we're talking about these three levels of feminine, uh, it's almost like water, where you have the liquid water, you have the steam, and then you have ice, and it's all water. It's all H2O, but it's in different. Um, levels of density, and so all of those are working within the feminine. And so your your question really was about, okay, well, if you're in this involved with the feminine, how do you avoid sort of um, going off balance or, or polarization or a degrading of uh, the masculine as you're elevating the feminine? And so... The way I see that is that we have such a lack of the feminine and even any knowledge of what that is in inside ourselves, inside our culture, because it's been devalued for so long that part of what we're doing here is really exploring what that is within ourselves and within our practice and in, in, in the men and women who are here. And there are actually quite a lot of men uh, at Taramandala involved with Taramandala. And I also teach the sacred, the Yab Yum practice, um, sacred sexuality, and also the union that I just spoke of. So I think it's a sense of um, more like turning the lens and focusing on the sacred feminine uh, just to see, okay, what is this? Where, you know, who is she? Where has she been? What is this? And then bringing that forth, discovering it, and at the same time not then feeling that this should dominate or this should take over, but rather that we need to find find out who she is and then and then bring that into the room. Uh, into the into the boardroom or into the into the discussion or you know into the lives of uh, of uh, of all of us of our families of our our um, companies of our you know organizations and 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 bring that voice of the feminine and that that's what I felt was lacking in in 2001 was you know if you think about those men who who did that. Uh, to the Twin Towers and, you know, who were their mothers, who were their sisters, what was their relationship with their wives, you know, where, you know, where's the feminine there? And, um, and so had, what if they had had, you know, a wife or a mother who had, whose voice was an equal voice in that family to the father? How how different would their decisions have been? So, does that answer your question? It's kind of a long. It answers it beautifully. I'd say it sounds to me that the inspiration that you have, you mentioned taking your seat, and in that, it's to bring back a balance or to bring forward yes. a balance. And to sit in that. Now, you mentioned Machik Labdrun, and one of the things that I learned in preparing for this conversation today is that you were named as an emanation of this 11th century Tibetan yogini. And I'd love to know more what that means to be an emanation of 
a person who lived and taught historically in a different century. What does that mean mm-hmm. to be an emanation? Well, I think if we if we take out sort of the limitations that we normally think about of what a person is, you know, for example, you're Tammy Simon, and so you have you have a mind stream which has been evolving over countless lifetimes. And that mind stream now is in your body, and you identify your body and you have that name and so on. But that mind stream is going to go on when your current body is no longer functioning. And... So what is that mind stream? And how is that purified and how does that become um, beneficial and unencumbered and so on? And that's really what your path is, is a, a way, it's a process of of unencumbering your your innate awake condition. And so this is what Machi Glapton was. She, she unencumbered her mind stream through her practice and and um, also she was considered to be an emanation of Yeshitsogil so it wasn't like she started from nowhere when she started you know she she was already Yeshitsogil so in terms of what this means for me here now in the 21st century um, what does that mean really you know when, when it happened I really was what does that mean? And what what I realized was, to me, the way I see it is that if I look back over the arc of my life, I had been dedicated to the teachings of Machik Lopchen pretty much all of my adult life and taught the Chud practice, as you know, and I did that recording for Sounds True about that and so on. And that was a long time before I was recognized, you know. And so, but what does that mean? To me, I think of it as I'm working for her. I'm working for that mind stream of Machik uh, that evolved in the 11th century that continues to manifest in the universe in various different ways. And the importance of it now to me is that I find her teachings so amazingly modern and relevant to our situation today in the world. And so I have been bringing that forth through my book, Feeding Your Demons, and my teaching and audio programs and so on. I've been bringing forth that, to the best of my ability, that stream of her luminous truth, her luminous vision, and her wisdom. And and so to be an emanation, it, you know, I don't feel like I am Machi Leptin, You know, I couldn't possibly think that about myself. I really see myself as uh, I'm working for her. It's like that's my job in this life. And I've had that job, and I've basically been doing it my whole life. And in 2007, it was sort of like, okay, well, this is your job description, you know. (laughs) Even though you've been doing it your whole life, you know, this is is what you were supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. So, you know, when when it happened in Tibet and... um, and um, it was a group of about 35 people I was on pilgrimage with, and the name of the pilgrimage was In the Footsteps of Machi Klaptran. And I had been guided to uh, to do this in a vision that I'd had in retreat the year before that October of 2006. And um, Machi had come to me in my retreat cabin and through a whole... Um, series of visions one night had told me I had to collect her vis- her her lineage and uh, and stabilize it here at Taramandala 
and it was urgent. And she was so uh, insistent on the urgency that I almost left retreat. And and then I realized, no, you know, you once you set your retreat boundaries, you never leave. So I didn't leave then. But then that next year, we went to Tibet and. And then one of the places we went was to her seat, and that's where this happened. And and so afterwards somebody said, what does that mean to you, just like what you just asked me? And, of course, mm-hmm. I was still sort of in shock from this whole thing happening. And And then what I said, and I think this is true, was it allows me to know what I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had always known a lot of things, but I wouldn't really trust myself completely. And so when I say it allows me to know what I know, I think there's a lot of us that know things, but we don't allow ourselves to know them. And so the that that was the effect for me of the recognition. And now when you say that you're working for Machik Labdran. I'd be curious to know, and I think this will also help our listeners become a bit familiar perhaps with who this great yogini was and what the qualities and imperatives of her quote-unquote mindstream are in our world today. What are you working for in working for Machik Labdran? Well, her primary approach was moving toward what we normally avoid and feeding, not fighting, those elements within ourselves and within our world. And so it's really an amazing um, paradigm shift to move from the idea that I must protect myself from anything that threatens me and I must think of any strategies I can to protect myself so I can be safe. That is the main job description for the ego, for the self-clinging ego. So that's what we do. We try to make sure that we're safe. And so what what Machi said was shift that. And instead of trying to protect yourself, offer yourself to that which you perceive as the enemy and offer yourself as food. So the the actual practice that she's famous for is, is of course, the chub practice in which you physically or or, um, you mentally imagine that you physically offer your body. Um, And so what that means then is if we took that and looked at it more, say, in a family or in an organization or even within ourselves, we would look at, okay, what are the threatening elements here or the perceived problematic elements within me, um, within my family, within my, my business? And what if instead of trying to get rid of those things or starve them or ignore them or attack them, what if I invited them to dinner <laughs> and I... I offered to to feed them to complete satisfaction with myself, with my own body. So what that does is sort of twofold. One is it undercuts the ego of the self because what the self wants to do is preserve itself and the body is the most central focus of the ego so by offering it you're immediately you you loosen that and you, you you release it and then it takes that if it's if it's say your own demon um and a demon in that case would be a fear or an addiction 
or some sort of neurosis, uh, some something that um, drains your energy. That's a, that's a good way to think about what your demons are. And so let's say you take that element of yourself and then you feed that, you personify it, and then you feed it to complete satisfaction. Then you're you're reversing the pattern of alienating and rejecting that part of yourself and fighting against it, and you're including it. And so what happens, say, within yourself is that the psyche begins to become more integrated and less at 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 unease with itself or battling against itself. And um, so uh, if we look at that in a family, we might take, you know, often in a family there's the problematic person. And so everyone's focused on that per- person as a problem. And so then you might invite that person to to speak and, and to to have their needs met. And so then that element of the family begins to become integrated and then the family isn't split. And so this is the teaching of Machi Klopton. And and she in just to put it very succinctly, she said, one take me, eat me is work is worth a hundred thousand protect me, save me. And and so it's a very different gestalt in in terms of the energy to to move toward the shadow, I guess you could say more in a psychological sense, and to feed the shadow element, whether it's in inside ourselves or in a group or in a in a collective situation. And and so what that does is create wholeness and so that's a very different model. And if we go back to 2011, for example, that situation, and we think about what if we had tried to find out what were those elements that were attacking us and you know, in what ways were we offending them and was there a way to bring them to the table and integrate that element rather than having it be so to, to do what it did. And I think we've seen in a lot of um, diplomacy recently the situations where, well, for example, in in Nepal, there was a whole Maoist um, element in Nepal that caused so many problems. And then the Maoists were invited to the table, and they're now in the government. In fact, they're in charge. And 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 so they're they're working with their agenda rather than blowing things up. And so so that would be when I say working with working for Machi Glaptran is is working for that shift on all different levels, personally and socially. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So, Lama Sultram, just to make this very grounded for someone, let's say someone has something in their life that they've been pushing away. I'll take something Mm -hmm. that so many of us have, a fear of death of some kind, and, you know, a fear of being diagnosed with something and then having to face one's death. And I push that away. I don't really want to think about it, don't want to think about it. How could I feed that instead of pushing it away? What would I do? Uh-huh. Well, the first step would be to find where you hold that in your body most strongly. So you'd think about that, that let's say that fear of death. 
or or the the fear that you had at the moment of the diagnosis or the fear you have of having the diagnosis feel where you feel that in your body most strongly and then take your awareness there and then you notice what's the color of it what's the temperature what's the shape what's this energy like in your body and then you allow that to move out of your body and be personified as a being in front of you. So you've taken that fear and you're seeing it in front of you as a being. So that's already an important step because usually with these fears, they're very uh, sort of unseen and hidden and we can't articulate them. And so we... We bring it out by by giving it form and seeing it in front of it. That's already bringing it into consciousness from the unconscious. And then we ask it uh, the questions. What do you want? What do you need? And how will you feel if you get what you need? And so then the process of feeding your demons is is then to become the demon and to sit in that seat, in that body, and answer those questions. And the the need is under the want. You know, so that let's say that, that fear wants to immobilize you. It it wants to make you unable to make any decisions and just gets you really depressed. That's what it wants. But what's the need? that it has, the need is maybe to feel safe. And so there, there's always a need under that that want. And so you identify the need and then you go back into your own body and then you imagine that your body becomes a nectar of the feeling that this demon would have if it got what it needed. And then that is fed. That nectar is fed to the demon to complete satisfaction. And and what happens once the demon is satisfied is it transforms. And it often transforms into the ally, which is the same energy that's locked up in the demon, but it's released from the fear from the constriction. And and so that's one of the powerful things about the demon work is that the demon actually becomes the ally. It's not like you defeat the demon with your ally or you call in this really strong ally and then you kill your demon. Throw it out. You know, and in, in a lot of the early cancer treatments, the Symington method for example, there was that whole idea that you, you, you create this army and then you get rid of the cancer by fighting it. But with the demon work, for example, you would you would meet the cancer, find out what it needs, and then feed it to complete satisfaction. And in that way, it doesn't need to eat you because it's fed. So often these diseases or, or neuroses, there's, there's something that's needing attention and so feeding it you're actually quite literally paying with your attention you're paying attention to something that you usually would try to ignore or or fight against does that make sense it does make sense it's very helpful we've been talking lama sultram as it turns out about some different key turning points in your life and events that happened, this crossroads that you met with your teacher mm. and then also being named as an emanation. And and I also know that about two and a half years ago, your husband, whom you were very much in love with, died suddenly at the age of 54. And I'm curious to know, and I'm sure this is quite a heart story, but 
how this event has changed you. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's something which is still in process. To, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to answer that question because I feel like I'm still understanding or I'm still undergoing um, the, I guess you could almost say the initiation that that was, um, that that is, to the initiation into death, into loss, and into grief. And I think one of the most helpful things that 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 ha- that what helped me in this um you know there's the classic thing of oh everything's impermanent and isn't this a good lesson and all that 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 was really unhelpful to me you know when people would say things like that but what helped me um was a song that we sing um and um in this song it's about being a practitioner and how no matter what happens you're always happy and um for example um in in one of the lines it says you know if if i'm sick i'm happy because I know that I'm clearing old karma. May I take the sickness of all beings upon myself? And then there's a line in there that says, if I'm sad, I'm happy. May I take the sadness of all onto myself. And... So the actual sadness then becomes a vehicle for the practice of taking the suffering of others onto yourself. And it it might seem really um, almost masochistic to do that. Uh, why would you want to take more suffering when you're already like over the top with your own suffering? Why would you possibly want to do that? It's one of those paradoxes of the Dharma that by doing that, by by realizing, oh, yes, I'm suffering, but think about those mothers whose children are not coming back from the war. Think about those parents who have lost their children. Think about people who who didn't have 22 years with their beloved, but were on their way to the wedding, and there was an accident, and they lost that person. And so I began to do that. I began to, when the grief would arise, I would, I would feel it, and then I would invite myself to take the grief of all the other beings that I could think of, all the other situations that I could think of, and take that unto myself, and then to offer them out love and compassion, offer that back to them. And ironically, that helped my grief. Hmm. And I think... because when we experience something like grief, there's a tremendous contraction of the heart. You know, you just feel like your heart's in a pressure cooker, and it's a, and it's and and you're not going to survive, and you can't take any more of the pain. And so, what happens when you offer love and compassion to others, and the um, identification 
with the suffering of others is that that contraction in the self on me, that contraction has to relax to feel the suffering of others. And and so that it moves from that self-clinging, grasping, contracted feeling to something vast, open, warm, and loving. And and so that was something that helped me and is helping me. And honestly, it's what's helped me the most. I mean, there there's other things that I could mention and other ways that I worked with the grief and... and um, one of them was all the ritual that we did around his his death and you know the Tibetan tradition is incredibly rich with that and we did a really full on Tibetan 49 day um practice and every every week doing a feast and then every day doing practice and washing his bones quite literally with saffron water during those ceremonies and so the the ritual the the level of ritual and the richness of it also helped me a lot i was so so grateful for the richness of my tradition and i know many many traditions do have uh, richness um around death and i think it's because by going through these rituals, your unconscious begins to process and be able to hold and have a structure for what's happened. So you're held by that structure of the ceremony. And that allows you, your psyche, to to go through it. It definitely sounds in keeping with this idea of feeding, not fighting, that in terms of working with your grief that you really have turned directly to it, even inviting in the grief and pain of other people. That was a big theme, if you will, in mm. in how you I ha- I'd never it. thought of it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um you know, I kind of felt like I was failing grief 101, you know, like <laughs> you know, as a teacher and, you know, lama and so on and I I really, you know, felt boy, I'm really not doing very well, you know. I'm really not I you know, I just was just I was so devastated and I felt like, oh, you know, you should be able to handle this better and really be able to apply the teachings in this moment. And I think those moments when you're confronted with something completely unexpected and outside even the realm of, you know, sort of your worst nightmare, um Yeah, there's a there's a sense of like shock, and then yeah, what? How am I going to work with this? And so, I I don't feel like I you know like I was great at it, you know, or that I am, you know, like really um, just sailing through this, you know. Um, and applying the teachings, and I, 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 I just, you know, I have said something that helped me, and I think that I, I just, I just wanted to be clear that although that has helped me, that it's not like I haven't suffered, and it's not like um, I feel like I was always able to do that, and um, mm-hmm. never overwhelmed by it, or just, you know, mm-hmm. caught um, in it. It's not. Uh, mm-hmm. It hasn't been like that. And 
you know, maybe there are some people, really great, realized people, who can do that. But I really, honestly, uh, haven't been able to to um, sail through this. It's it's been difficult, and it um, it's less now. It's less intense, but it it's it it hasn't been easy. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your humility in sharing that part of it. I think that's very helpful to people. It's the truth. Well, I think it's important that, um, you know, what was helpful to me also in grieving was the people who just allowed me to be where I was you know, and not um, feeling like I had to be in a different state than I was, but more that, you know, that in the in the myth of um, Inanna and Ereshkigal, I remember when she's way down, um, Inanna goes into the into this descent in the in the underworld, and um, and the way that um, Inanna is eventually rescued is by those who who go down to rescue her, and 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 she says, "Oh, oh, my insides," and then they say, "Oh, oh, your insides," and "Oh, oh, my outsides," and then they they just mirror, "Oh, oh, your outsides," and I think that's something so powerful. Um, if you're with somebody who's grieving, is just to be that kind of witness of, oh, oh, my insides, oh, oh, your insides. You know that that simple, um, a presence and a witnessing is uh, very, it's very helpful. Hmm. Lama Sultram, I want to end by in a way, making a full circle, which is even though you haven't stated this explicitly more than once in this conversation, I've heard it a couple times, which is this idea of trusting ourselves and how you had to do that in taking your seat. And I even hear you doing that in the process of your life of finding your way through the grief journey. And I wonder what you could say that might be helpful to people in terms of helping them trust themselves more as they journey on their path. Mm. Well, I think in order to trust yourself, you have to know yourself. And so that means being aware of what you actually think, what you actually feel in various situations, not what you should think or you should feel or what you've been taught to or what your teacher tells you you should, or, but what you do. And that might sound easy, but I don't think it is. I think we come with so many... Um, shoulds and so many influences in our lives that to know yourself is actually quite difficult. Mm. And so I think one of the ways that I would advise people to know themselves is is, is through meditation, through stopping, because when you meditate, you stop. And and then you begin to see your mind, what you're doing, what you're thinking, what's happening. And and then also watching others react to you and your reaction to others. Then you begin to see yourself. And it can be very um, unpleasant <laughs> sometimes, to, you know, like you might think, oh, know yourself. Oh, I'm just going to discover this amazing being, you know, what I know myself. But that's not it. You know, it's it's 
it may that might be part of it, but you're also going to discover your shadow and your things that you don't want to know about yourself. And and so within all that, there's 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 gems of of, of truth and 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 development, because once we begin to know our shadow or or know our demons, admit our demons, then we begin to become more integrated as 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 people. And so if you if you just look at my life, for example, with the um, the process that I went through of having to own my own values and then the process of feeding your demons or the process of 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 the grief and and coming into an honest relationship with that all of those really have to do with with trying to be honest with with myself and so there's lots of different methods to do that meditation, therapy, dream work, um, the mandala of the five uh, dakinis that that I teach is very powerful in that. And so, you know, there, there's many, many methods, but all of them are pointing to honesty and authenticness as human beings. And 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 our our foibles, our weakness, it's part of the beauty of us as as human beings. And so I would just encourage people to allow yourself to be human and then and then capture the gems and develop them within your own humanity. I've been speaking with Lama Sultram Alioni with Sounds True. Lama Sultram has created a five-session audio course on the Mandala of the Enlightened Feminine. It's a course on tapping into the five Buddhist female archetypes or dakinis for transformation. She's also created a two-session audio learning program called Cutting Through Fear, and it is a version of the Chud practice that we've been discussing in this conversation that helps you work on transforming and releasing difficult emotions. Lama Sultram, it's great to be with you and really commune. I, I feel really grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Well, Tammy, it was my pleasure. And just before we dissolve this, I'd just like to send out a generation of spreading the merit of our conversation to all beings and gratitude to all the listeners and everyone who's listening to this because they're on their path and and they're they're seeking and I'm grateful to all of them. Wonderful. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.